Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and read more about this week's show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Mandela. This afternoon, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in Caloundra, Australia, and Caloundra is located about 100 kilometers north of Brisbane on the eastern coast of Australia, about halfway up. We are sitting here today in the home of Auntie Hope Ochin. Auntie Hope Ochin is a traditional Kabi Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts, and the lore of her own culture. She has worked as a teacher and an artist. First of all, Auntie Hope Ochin, thank you so much for inviting me into your home today and joining me on the trail less traveled. Uh, Mandela, it's a pleasure for me to be able to contribute to such a really important initiative of being able to share our stories, our culture, with those who probably wouldn't have heard before. And uh, if you've got the chance to be able to take this back to your own country, then I will see this also as an additional gift to the Native American Indians of both America and Canada and New Mexico too, of course. When I had the chance to be able to visit the countries over there, they showed their generosity. They shared their culture with me and supported me in what I was trying to do. And I, I journeyed over there with my son, Kerry. So Kerry and I were both stationed with the Tananana group of Native American Indians in Phoenix, Arizona. And we had the chance to be able to meet quite a number of other people from other nations too as well. So thank you very much. Auntie Hopo Chin, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I uh, grew up on an Aboriginal community. It was a mission, a reserve, similar to the reservations situation and the dormitory situations that existed over in the United States. I had a chance to visit, for instance, the Heard Museum and was able to see all of the stories of so many people where where there were outsiders who invaded their lands and in taking prisoners, most of the people were impounded on missions and reserves, reservations. I had that same experience here in Queensland, Australia. The name of the mission or reserve where I was born was called Sherberg. Initially, the name of the reserve was called Baramba, but was later changed to the name of Sherberg in 1934. My grandmother, my mother, myself, 
and a couple of my children, my older children, were all placed on missions and reserves. So there was a third generational family and you would find this very similar to most Aboriginal people here in Australia who have had these experiences from 1901 for example that's when there was the Australian legislation that formally endorsed states and territories to manage the lives of Aboriginal people in Australia and right across Australia missions and reserves were set up and Aboriginal people lived under very, very strict rules and laws because their lives were so closely managed by uh, the authorities of the day. And everyone who needed to go outside of their reserve, their mission or reservation, needed to be escorted by police and they had to always carry with them a permit which determined what leave they had from each respective reservation that they came from. Although it was a very bleak and restricting, as children growing up, we weren't really, really aware of why we were on the missions because we weren't never ever allowed to um, speak our own languages or to uh, practice any of the um, songs and stories and any part of our culture and you know what happens in times like that most of what we learnt went underground on the missions themselves And in secret, a lot of our people were able to maintain bits and pieces of their culture. A lot of languages, First Nation languages, were very close to extinction, and of course many did, as were a lot of the peoples from different nations. It was feared that they too would become extinct with what was happening here in Australia. So the stories, the songs, all of those things, the law, L-O-R-E that is, as well as the law, that I'm interested in came about because I wanted to be able to contribute to the knowledge and the resources so that our children will always know of their culture, their history, when they had a chance to be able to be open in order to be able to learn all about that. As a child, in the dormitories, there were um, four lots of dormitories on Sherberg. One was for the old people, mainly men, old men, the girls' dormitory. Some of the older women were kept in the girls' dormitory. There was the boys' dormitories and there were the mothers' dormitory. And also on the community itself, there were 
people who lived in the camp areas and most of the people who worked on Sherberg under the permit system were living in the camp areas which were very separate to the dormitories where I grew up and lived. In the camp areas, those that lived there were restricted of having true freedom in the true sense of the word that any Australian citizen would have. Aboriginal people weren't allowed to be citizens until 1967 when there was a referendum that was held in Australia and 98% of the Australian people voted that Aboriginal people should be counted. That was a really um, significant time. It meant that the eyes of the world were watching what was happening to Aboriginal people. And no longer could some of the um, restrictions occur where Aboriginal people were, in fact, able to um, earn a wage, choose a job that they wanted to work in, choose whether or not they wanted to be educated, and just all those little things that everyone takes for granted when they're growing up in any society that offers life and living within that society. I guess I was a very young girl. I was in my teens when the 1967 referendum came in and through all of the rejoicing right across Australia, people weren't aware that it was still going to take many years for those changes from the 1967 referendum to take effect. For example, children were still being taken off their parents and their mothers up until the late 1970s. Aboriginal people, even though they were given a wage instead of rations... Their wages were lower than the basic award wages that ordinary Australians were given. Some of the other provisions, like being able to own your own house, that other Australians took for granted, and other free old lands. Generally, Aboriginal people weren't allowed to, by law, do this because that was one of the other restrictions and With all of those restrictions, you were indeed a prisoner within a prison, or many prisons right across Australia, in so much that Aboriginal people were not only called a range of names, but they were also referred to as inmates. And inmates, indeed, they had no freedom to be able to live freely within Australian society. Despite all that, we ended up having a very, very happy childhood. And it's a tribute to our parents and our grandparents who went through such very difficult times. They were able to shield us in some ways 
protect us and they'd make sure that we knew what to do, when to do it, so that our families couldn't be removed. That wasn't always true, of course. My nana, she grew up from this area where we're this interview has taken place here at Caloundra as a woman from around this area. When the government came in in the early 1920s to 1934, a little bit later than that, they took all of Nana's children off here and one of the, my mother's brothers was sent to a one of the missions that was set up for boys outside of Ipswich. That mission was called Perga Mission. And it was a mission of mainly children that was run by the Salvation Army Church at that particular time. The missions were either run by governments or by church groups. And children were split up and sent here, there and everywhere. This whole world is a funny thing, isn't it? It seems like through war and invasion, times of invasion, and that, sometimes the children are the ones that suffer severely. Because I've heard that there were boatloads of British children who, after the war, were sent over here to live in Australia to make a new place for them to live because their parents couldn't have been found. And you have hear of similar stories right across the world. It, was that a good thing or was it a bad thing? You'll just never know, I guess. And I think sometimes it's up to individuals and how they are able to cope with their own situations that determine how those things have affected them all their lives. That is the voice of Auntie Hope Ochin. She is a traditional Kabi Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts, and the lore of her own culture. Auntie Hope Ochin has worked as a teacher and an artist. You are on The Trail Has Travelled. Recorded on the land of the Kabi Kabi people in Eastern Australia.
we return to the trail less traveled. This afternoon, the trail less traveled is being recorded in Caloundra, Australia. Caloundra is located on the coast of Australia, about 100 kilometers north of Brisbane. So if you look at the map of Australia, we're looking at the eastern side, about halfway up the coast. Today I'm speaking with Auntie Hope Ochin. She is a traditional Kabi Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts, and the lore of her own culture. Auntie Hope Ochin has worked as a teacher and an artist. Auntie Hope Ochin, my next question for you is in regards to the passing down of knowledge from our ancestors. And in your country, there's been such a long history of passing down the knowledge from your ancestors down to the children, but in particular, jumping one generation. So you spending time with your grandmother. My question is just how important it is to pass down the knowledge from our ancestors and what that process was like for you. I think it's important that a sense of place, a sense of belonging, and all those things that are dear to one's identity, to one's culture, to one's sense of place within any society, occurs through those memories and those things that highlight the important things of one's culture. First Nation people here in Australia have existed and lived on this continent for thousands and upon thousands of years. The number of years have changed from uh, historians anthropologists who have tried to predate and record the evidence of the world's oldest living culture. So therefore, at one time, I heard that we had lived here 30,000 years or so. And at other times, I'd heard that there was over 60,000 years that we have lived in this continent. And even other times, I'd heard that we had lived here for over 300 or so thousand years. But fundamentally, what's most important to me and to my family and to each of my children is our beliefs of how we've been able to exist and live harmoniously with everything within our world on this continent, regardless of how many thousands of years people tried to argue about. There was also a theory that perhaps people came from Asia and from the other Pacific Islands and migrated here when the uh, world was a bigger landmass and people could island up on very simple canoes. And perhaps that's how Aboriginal people were first in this country. Apparently, they could have moved here 
during that particular wave of migration. As I said before, that's really only a theory, though. There has never, ever, ever been any question within our minds that we haven't always been here since creation. And I guess the fundamental stories of law, L-O-R-E, and those values and beliefs that we have passed down over millenniums and thousands of years have been the evidence that have shown us that even though there were 250-odd nations with different languages that inhabited this continent and even though they had different cultures and different ways of doing things they were able to remain and exist on this continent up until the recent migration or the invasion from 1770 when it was said that Captain Cook discovered this world and that Captain Cook, through the orders that he was given, was ordered to take possession of this land and everything in this land. And part of those orders also made Captain Cook obliged to declare that there was no human inhabitants on this land because this land was terra nullius, empty lands. I guess this paved the way for the trend of our Aboriginal people were treated right from that very first time when it was written that the history of possession in Terranolius. Prior to that, though, you had 250 nations who spoke 250 different languages who, in order to live harmoniously on this continent, would have had to have established rules and laws of their own, laws that brought about respect, laws that determine where each nation lived within this continent and that those places belonged to them. In fact, prior to Captain Cook, and then the first wave of convicts that hit Australia. Everybody else who came to Australia also abided by the rules that the First Nation peoples of Australia must have declared because they came, they looked, they saw, they exchanged gifts and they left. 
Some of the gifts that the Indonesian people, for instance, had given to some of our mob who lived on the northern part of Australia, now called the Northern Territory, bought with them some tamarind trees. And that's when the first tamarind trees were planted on this continent. And our mob must have really loved them because now you see those tamarind trees just about in every state with every one of our mob right across Australia. But when the British came, it was quite a different story. They tried to say that there was no resistance. There was no defence of this land here. So, therefore, the land could be taken. But I guess our mob, like so many other world nations, couldn't fight against guns and cannons and other forms of warfare that were introduced. And so, although our mob knew that there was indeed an invasion going on, and then, once they were defeated, acknowledged that the British had won, the British refused to believe that this was the truth of the history of Australia. And up until recently, always maintained that Australia was a peaceful settlement of all the pioneers that recently discovered this continent in the last 200 years or so. Now, I find that a little bit insulting, a little bit impossible to believe, given that scientific proof from archaeologists, historians, have proven that the First Nation people of Australia would have at least lived here for at least, I'll give you the lowest, of 30,000 years. So you can't tell me that just in a very short period of 200 years that suddenly this place was discovered. Of course, that story is now being seen as what it was, just a load of baloney. And now there has been a concentrated effort by all Australians with our people at the forefront in trying to make people aware that the history did happen. We've had a chance in which we could reconcile the horrific things that happened in the past and all work together for a very, very great future for our Australia today. I wonder, though, as all of the issues that we need as any society to be able to give us those elements of a sense of place a sense of belongingness, a sense of being connected together, exists. I say this because today in Australia, 
Aboriginal people are saying that we can't celebrate Australia Day. Prior to the recent gatherings of survival right across Australia, there has always been a separate ceremony held by our mob and this was referred to as a day of mourning or sorry business for our people because it signifies when the first round of invasions took place. So there are still so many issues that really need to be sorted out. There was also a recent inquiry that was held by the recent federal government to investigate provisions for equitable outcomes, representation and equity for all Australians within the Australian Constitution. For it was found that Australia's Constitution, unfortunately, really truly does not address some of the issues that our people have faced for hundreds of years of racism and not been seen as Australians despite having been given citizenship. There still remains those issues that are outstanding. There are the issues that perhaps if Australia really meant business about doing something about trying to right the wrongs of the past that perhaps they should have done what every other First Nation race and nations had a chance to be able to do in the first instance and that was to be able to negotiate treaties Unfortunately, Australia's First Nations people, this didn't happen. They didn't have the chance to negotiate a treaty. There is also the other issues of identity, and this includes those emblems and symbols that represent us as a nation, an Australian nation. For example... The current Australian flag does not have any representation from Australia's First Nations people. Prior to 1901 and the movement of Federation, when Australia was being considered a republic, a new flag was chosen for the Australian nation and the Australian people. So the orders went out from the government, hey, we shall have a big competition. And a big magazine, one of the uh, magazines, I think it was Australia Post, a few of the magazines, they were able to choose five entries that they brought together to make up the current Australian flag. Now, the issues for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is that they didn't have a chance to have a say because they weren't even considered citizens at that particular point in time. And therefore, they weren't given the chance 
to be able to design an Australian flag. So these are issues and dilemmas that our people are still grappling with today in trying to not just make loud noises about being treated equitably, to try and stamp out racism, but to have a fair go. Eh, mate? That is the voice of Auntie Hope Ochin. She is a traditional Kabi-Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts, and the lore of her own culture. Auntie Hope Ochin has worked as a teacher and an artist. You are on The Trail Has Travelled. Recorded on the land of the Kabi-Kabi people in Eastern Australia. It's the trail less traveled with Mandela. This afternoon, the trail less traveled is being recorded on location in Australia. We are in Caloundra, Australia. Caloundra is located on the eastern coast of Australia, about halfway up, about 100 kilometers north of Brisbane. Outside the window, the wind is blowing pretty strongly, and you can hear the call of parrots and all different types of birds. And if you listen very keenly, you can kind of hear the waves of the ocean. We're that close. The salt is in the air. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. We're recording in the home of my guest this evening, Auntie Hope Ochin. Auntie Hope Ochin is a traditional Kabi-Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts, and the lore of her own culture. Auntie Hope Ochin has worked as a teacher and an artist. Auntie Hope Ochin, my last question for you is, what can the West and other cultures in the world learn from how the indigenous Aboriginal Australians lived with the land and animals for hundreds of thousands of years. The knowledge that Australia's First Nation peoples were in fact the oldest living survivors of their culture within the world says something. 
even though there's always been debates, you know, about whether or not in Africa, for instance, Mungo Man would have been seen as the example of the oldest living survival. Well, that says something too as well. For thousands and thousands of years, 250 diverse nations who spoke different languages, who lived in different places that they call their homes, were able to live on this continent in a harmonious way, could have only come out of being able to have respect for each other's differences, to have knowledge of some of the things that was important for everyone to share and to be able to uh, accept the diversities that existed amongst all of the nations in relation to their culture, their languages. May have been times, too, that there would have been gatherings where a number of different language groups would have travelled for thousands and thousands of kilometres to participate in different festivals and ceremonies, some that promoted marriages, some that acknowledged an important aspect of any environment that was unique to any specific nation. An example of that here on the Sunshine Coast is the Bunya festivals. The Bunya tree, I don't know if you know about the Bunya tree, it's a massive pine tree that has pods of uh, nut pods and the uh, trees only bear fruit, I think, every second year. And it is during the fruit-bearing times of the Gabi Gabi nation's lands there used to occur an invitation that was sent Australia-wide for those who wanted to come in and join with the Gabi Gabi people in the festivals that they were having to eat the nuts of these trees. And at those particular point in times, it would have been a time in which people would have had the chance to get to know each other develop long-term relationships with each other and cement, I suppose, the bonds that continued the harmonious relationships of respect for each other, for people, for their culture and for the knowledge and their country. For example, there would have been protocols that would have been established for other nations to meet or come onto Gabi Gabi land. There would have been a place, a common meeting place, where people would have asked for permission if they could enter into other people's places. Mind you, the Gabi Gabi people always knew their land and knew exactly where their boundaries were. 
and the boundaries were determined sometimes by the shapes of the hills or the mountains or by the rivers or by the parts of the ocean. But everyone knew whenever they trespassed on somebody else's nation's country without asking for permission to be there first. I'd shudder to think what would have possibly been the punishment to do that without first of all asking for permission in the first instance. I think that it's important to realise, as the Gabi Gabi people did, that everyone is a unique, individual human being. And the relationship one has with everyone else and their environment is from that unique perspective of each individual. I think one of the other things that was really important to us too was that our mob had a vision. They knew how to preserve their land. They knew how to look after each other. And the preservation of lands came through the fire burnings, the farming, which no one realised existed for Aboriginal people. For instance, there were no fences, identifiable fences, that would have determined that they were civilised in what would have been termed a civilised world. But the fire farming that took place ensured that the herds of kangaroos and other animals had fresh grass roots that would grow when the rain came. And therefore our mob would have quite easily been able to contain herds of kangaroos and other animals within these areas of concentrated fire farming. There were also the rivers and the oceans where there were evidence of huge fish traps made of rock formations so that on the high tide fish would be caught in these fish traps when the low tides then made the waters flow out. And then, of course... The way in which the men would have ingeniously used their weapons. There were a few weapons. All of those weapons were to be used in a multi-skilled way. For example, the spears that were used for spear fishing were made of light wood. That when you threw them, the spears wouldn't sink. So you wouldn't always be losing your spears. And of course at the end was the twine that was used as string. And that string was made out of a combination of vines as well as human hair. Simple but ingenious. Evidence of civility was already there within each family 
within each nation. Their forms of communication through their own languages and other dialects that meant that they could communicate with other nations was made up of very, very complex linguistic rules that were followed. Evidence, of course, of a very highly civilised society. And also the way in which their values and their beliefs were kept intact. They were based on the storytelling of the way in which their people lived and survived for thousands and thousands of years. Some of those stories tell of Miami or Alcheringa. It demonstrates the fact that Australia's First Nation people believed in the Almighty or God, as Alcheringa and Miami was referred to. A very, very highly civilised society with beliefs that provided hope, aspirations and visions for the future, not only of their people, but of all living things within their environment. So a few simple things that I would like to share about the importance of preserving our people, our culture, as being built on respect. Respect of people, respect of language, respect of values and beliefs, and respect of country. Acknowledging that we are one, but we make up many. Auntie Hopo Chin, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the trail less traveled. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure, and I'd like to wish you well in whatever you do in the future, and I'm pretty sure that there would be many other people just like myself who would love to be able to share a little bit to make up those gems that everyone seems to believe are theirs too as well. You have been on the trail less travelled and we were recording on location in Caloundra, Australia, on the eastern coast of Australia. Auntie Hopo Chin is a traditional Kabi Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts and the lore of her own culture. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The Trail Less Traveled is the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series and award-winning podcast. 
I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Auntie Hope Ochin. Auntie Hope Ochin is a traditional Kabi-Kabi Waka Waka elder of Australia's First Nations people. She is studying for a PhD in education, the arts, and the lore of her own culture. Auntie Hope Ochin has worked as a teacher and an artist. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream the show live online by visiting trail1033.com. The podcast is free and available on all platforms, including Spotify and Pandora. The show is dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world. Produced at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the heart of Missoula, Montana, yet recorded on location in order to capture these stories in their natural habitat. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I work full-time as an expedition river guide in the Grand Canyon, Morocco, and New Zealand in order to fund these expeditions and global recordings. So I would like to thank you, the listener, for your support of this new genre of adventure radio. You can get in touch with me, recommend a storyteller, and join us as the show is recorded around the world by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. My travel tip this week is for all those listeners under the age of 31, or if you know of anyone who's under 31. Australia will issue a one-year working holiday permit as long as you apply before you turn 31. You can find out more information and apply online by visiting homeaffairs.gov.au. Search for work and holiday visa. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the thing about the gnar is it doesn't shred itself. <laughs>